data storytellers. Today on the show, I have with me Lindsay Turner. We had a great conversation with Lindsay last week, and I wanted to jump on a podcast to immortalize some of that inspiration. So first of all, Lindsay, welcome on the show. Thanks. So Lindsay, for those who don't know you yet, would you mind just giving a quick introduction into what you do and your role over at uh, Edward Jones? Yeah, sure. So I work for Edward Jones. Um, we are a wealth management firm with over 19,000 financial advisors in every state in the United States and every province in Canada. I um, lead our data science area as well as our enterprise analytic and BI teams. So we are set up as a hub and spoke analytic model where we have analytic teams that focus on functional reporting and day-to-day -day analytics within each function in our um, corporate headquarters. I lead a team that focuses on data science for the entire enterprise, as well as any enterprise-wide priorities that leverage analytics, data science, and business intelligence for decision-making and integrating analytics into our solutions. Okay, sounds like an exciting role. and. Um... So maybe to spend, we can spend a few minutes on what led up to this point. So how did you actually get involved with analytics in the first place? Yeah, um, I, I'd like to say it was kind of by happenstance. I, um, my education is in marketing and business. The only uh, class I really enjoyed in marketing was pricing. Um, there were some analytics involved and that was really interesting to me. Um, I started my career out of college in retail banking, um, got some great experience being a financial advisor at a regional bank, which helps me with my career at Edward Jones, although definitely realized that wasn't the position for me. So went back to school for my master's degree and um, had uh, applied for a leadership program at a health insurance company, asked for a recommendation from someone I knew. And he said, hey, I'm starting a pharmaceutical analytic team. Would you like to take that position instead and come help me build up the team? So I kind of landed in pharmacy analytics by accident. Um, absolutely loved it and loved helping to support a leader build a team from the two of us to I think they've got 15 or 20 people on that team. Then I decided I wanted to learn more about the business. Um, I'm more interested in understanding how a business functions broadly versus having narrow and deep expertise. So I moved to their corporate analytics team, um, did all kinds of predictive modeling, contract analytics, um, health, you know, health-related analytics to support health outcomes, and then was looking for a change in work-life balance after I had my first child, had started talking to someone that I knew that worked at Edward Jones. She connected me with the leader of analytics at the firm at the time. And six months um, of conversations led me to Edward Jones, where I am now. I've been there six years and absolutely loving it. Fantastic. Well, uh, speaking of the change of work-life balance due to a first child. I had my first on the way arriving in August, just around the corner. So I'm, I'm bracing for impact. I, I, I've been having these conversations with you guys. I think every single one of these uh, data story sessions starts with the, the 10 minutes of parental advice that I just shamelessly yes. grab from the community. Yes, so uh, That hard part of parenting is you can uh, read all of the data you want, but 
every child is an individual. And so they're just going to do what they're going to do. And you learn along the way. Yeah, I guess I always remember that uh, quote from Mike Tyson that uh, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. So I think that's probably like very applicable to, to a newcomer, but I hear that nothing is as rewarding or it's like an amazing journey that uh, you know, I'm excited to embark on. Yeah, um, the hardest, best thing you can do. Yeah, exactly. And then speaking of challenges, so uh, analytics, you know, we all love it. It's super exciting, especially now to be in that field. But what have you seen as some of the bottlenecks of success in analytics? So a lot of people have different assumptions about, you know, how analytics looks like and what it takes to really have a proper impact. But uh, you've been involved in different companies, now you're at Edward Jones. Again, it's a very exciting opportunity for you guys. But what have you seen as the key challenges in the industry for leaders? Yeah, I think, um, you know, everyone thinks that their data is bad and I think that's true everywhere. So obviously keep um, ha working at a large organization, which I've worked at several large organizations in analytics. Um, it, it's always hard to move fast enough to keep up with um, the technology that supports building data for the purpose of analytics. I think that that is a struggle um, you're going to find everywhere. When I talk to my peers um, working in big or small um, companies, that's that's always a challenge. But I think that's something that we just have to learn how to work around and get past. And um, analysts are problem solvers. So if you give them an opportunity, they're going to figure that one out on their own. I think working for a company that was built um, in the last probably 10, 15 years versus an organization that has been around for 101 years like Edward Jones is very different in the sense that um, if you're starting from a clean slate, you're probably starting with more modern technology and starting with a leadership team that understands the value of data and analytics. So you're, you're kind of moving past some of those barriers that work when you start with a really mature older company um, firm or firm like Edward Jones. So, you know, going from insurance to Edward Jones was a really big awakening for me and, and my leadership journey and how to sell the value of data-driven decisions because I walked into a firm that has created success over the last 101 years based on experience and storytelling. So I was a successful financial advisor. I was promoted into a corporate position and I'm going to lead the field to be successful in the same ways that I was successful when I was in their role. I think that worked for a really long time, but we're in a very different world where the environment is changing so much faster than it ever has before and customers no longer have expectations based on whether they're at the grocery store or the mall or speaking with their financial advisor. But any best experience you have today is the baseline for what experience you expect from anyone tomorrow. So we need to start leveraging the power of data because we can make decisions, we can see more faster leveraging data than through storytelling alone. That has been the biggest barrier in integrating analytics into decision-making um, that I have faced as a leader. And I know that a lot of my peers have, have said the same thing. I was speaking with a peer the other day and he was saying, I'm, I'm bringing this idea to my peer 
in um, investment products and I know they need this solution, um, but they don't know they need it yet. And so I'm trying to get them to, you know, champion me to prioritize this work, but I don't know how to convince them that this is the right work to be done today. That's, that's the, I think, biggest challenge that um, most analytic leaders face in mature organizations. Mm, 100%. And really working yourself into the business processes, like how to get in there and then move beyond the stakeholders merely paying lip service to analytics, which I guess is abundantly available, especially in the middle of all this hype. If you ask an average business stakeholder, hey, how about analytics? How about some AI? Everyone's like super on board. When, when it comes to actually changing behaviors, that's a whole different conversation. And as we know, the path to actually re rewire or like change behaviors is through rewiring beliefs. And that's why the whole storytelling aspect becomes so practical, just more than a buzzword. So, and I don't really think we need to sell the problem too hard of, of uh, how important this is, but maybe we can try a little bit to flex some of those storytelling muscles. So if you think about it, like, why is this such an important uh, opportunity? Why should data leaders prioritize this? What is the great uh, reward in this? If you actually figure this out, what kind of doors will this open for you? If you manage to work your way into the company and make sure that being data-driven or data-centric, data-informed is not just a buzzword anymore, but really becomes life. What does it do to, for you as a data analytics leader? For me, the greatest um, gratification I can get from it is seeing the work that my teams are doing reflected in decisions that are being made at our firm. So as much as I love analytics, um, I'm a, you know, I'm a critical thinker. I like problem solving. I'm more rewarded by my people leadership responsibilities. And the best thing that I can do for my team is to ensure that their work is being used to make better decisions than if their work didn't exist. Um, and so, so that's, I think, I think the, the greatest personal gratification that I can get is ensuring that my team sees the reward and the recognition for their work. But even more importantly is that I know that as a firm, we are making better decisions by not just making data-driven decisions, but by combining the data-driven decision with our experience, with our stories, because the quantitative is only part of the story. There's also qualitative that's so important as well. And it's that combination of the two that makes, you know, me know that as a firm, we are really making the right decisions for our firm, for our colleagues and for our clients. Absolutely. And when those dots connect, so first of all, there's the personal gratification in that and the business, the, it helps the bottom line and all that. But at the same time, you as a team suddenly, in our experience at least, find a purpose. So everyone becomes more engaged, everyone becomes more invested, and everyone can fulfill their potential in that state. So it's hard to overstate the importance of getting to that point. So it's not just a PNL issue, but you know, there's all kinds of intangible, invisible benefits to that. And maybe on the flip side, so this is the carrot. Uh, uh, what about the stick? So what happens when you miss the mark on this, uh, you prioritize the wrong things, and you don't manage to work your way in? Like, 
what are the the main risks of becoming maybe like a reporting vending machine or just you know kind of being swept to the sidelines uh analytics guys doing their analytic thing in the analytics corner so what what do you see as the potential risks in that and the, and the pain and frustration that it can engender yeah i mean for sure bad business decisions can come from it so i've seen where um, we've had people make decisions based on how something worked a year ago or over the last two years and not considered the external conditions. And when you don't in consider those external conditions or how the numbers might be moving in a way that you can't see when you throw them in a pivot chart, um, you can make a bad business decision. So it could cost money. It could, you know, in, in our environment, it could, you know, certainly pose, you know, regulatory risk. So we want to ensure that we're using all of the tools at our disposal, including data and analytics to ensure that we're making good decisions, that we're protecting our firm, protecting our clients and creating new opportunity that we might not otherwise have found um, if we only focus on what has happened before in history alone. Mm -hmm. So I think now we have a good grasp on the on, on the landscape and what is there to gain, what is there to lose. So uh, we also have visibility on what shaped and molded you as a professional up to this point, kind of the challenges that you've seen along the way. So how did you approach this problem? So what was your uh, playbook when you tried to make sure that you move beyond people just kind of thinking that they might want to do analytics into that being a part of their day-to-day -day work. And maybe we can, you know, approach this from a few different angles, but where would you start? Yeah. So first I would say, don't try to hire unicorns, build yourself a unicorn team. Um, I have come across so many different types of thinkers in the analytics space and some, you know, are really amazing at building visuals that are intuitive, that lead people to the right conclusion based on the data. I have met data scientists that, you know, specialize in mathematical optimization and LLMs and the worst thing in the world for them is to get up in front of a business leader and speak to a presentation. I have met analysts and worked with analysts that know everything there is to know about a certain area of the business, and they know that data backwards and forwards, where all those bodies are buried in the data and they can answer any question. But if you ask them to build a PowerPoint, they're going to say, I'm going to go find another job, right? So instead of focusing on hiring someone that can run the analytic model, build the viz, understand the business create that awesome PowerPoint presentation to sell um, your insights to your firm, your company, create a unicorn team and get, you know, that team together that has those strengths in individual areas and have them work together to create a product that you can sell to your company, to your firm. And then everyone's engaged and you have a better product at the end of the day. Hmm. So I literally just recorded a data story with Pete Scherf, the VP of Analytics and Enterprise Research at Swire, Coca-Cola. And uh, his topic was how to build this super uh, high-performance team with exceptional business impact. So we're very much on topic. Um, maybe just like a quick tactical question on that, or I guess it's strategic, but tactical in terms of maybe a little bit more specific. 
How do you structure your team? Do you have any particular approach yep. to uh, structuring, managing, organizing the, the cohort? Sure. So in our enterprise team, we have um, 75 analytic practitioners that split into data science, enterprise analytics, and business intelligence. And then within those functions, we create teams, this, you know, four or five analysts, data scientists to a team with a leader that specialize in different areas of our business so that we have that analytic technique specialization as well as the business subject that they're analyzing. And then we ensure that those teams are working cross-functionally together um, based on the business or the top you know, priority that we're focused on so that we can get the right skill sets. That's the team that I lead. And then I have a peer who leads our analytic consulting organization and, and as well as strategy. We are a matrix team. So her analytic consultants are on the project teams that my teams are on based on our firm's top priorities. And those analytic consultants manage our business relationships, help translate a business problem into an analytic problem with my team, and then also help us for building those PowerPoint presentations, for learning the goals and the motivations of the different functional areas within our organization so that we can ensure once the analytics are built and delivered, that we have integration paths um, for those insights into our decisions. Mm. Maybe another like a tactical uh, question on that is, first of all, Pete is a huge fan of Agile. So that's how they organize their day-to-day their -day and keep everyone on track. They do the sprints and the reviews. Uh, do you guys use something similar or what, what's your daily, what are your daily rituals to keep everyone looking in the same direction and, and gain that speed and, and momentum? Yeah, honestly. Um, so as a firm, we moved from waterfall to agile in our digital and technology areas a few years ago. We're still working through that transition. And from an analytics standpoint, what we have found works best for us is to be flexible with the business area that we're working with. And if they're working in a waterfall fashion, then we will adjust to that waterfall fashion. If we're, um, if they're working in agile, true agile with scrum masters and, um, and you know, two week sprints, then we will do the same. So we try to match what works best for the business and are, are really flexible in that way. Our development process, our governance processes are flexible so that we can um, move in a way that works best with our business partners. Got it. Okay, so this is super useful, especially to kind of frame your approach. Don't try to hire unicorns, build yourself a unicorn team, and some great insights on, okay, how do you manage and organize? So that's fantastic. What would be another part of your uh, uh, playbook, another, another main thing that everyone should keep in mind and uh, make sure that it's on the checklist? Yeah, I can't emphasize enough the importance of building relationships with your business partners. So my peer and I, the leader of analytic consulting and, and myself who leads analytic delivery, we build relationships with the organizational bodies that create our top 10 priorities for the firm. And we sit on their leadership teams. Our jobs are not to sit within that meeting and wait until we have a question about analytics or someone needs an insight but we are there to truly be a strategic partner, to understand their area of the business, to be a thought partner with them, not just in how analytics can help forward their outcomes, but also to um, 
test thinking on ideas they have, to share ideas in their um, in their strategic goals. Um, and so, and then also to create shared accountability for business results. So if I am working with a senior leader who has a strategic priority for the firm, whatever his or her outcomes are on their performance reviews, I'm going to share those outcomes on my performance reviews. That ensures that any of the analytics that my team is working on helps to forward the work that we're doing. So I'm truly at stake for them. I think the second part of building that really strong relationship and trust is to ensure that I'm using their language. Um, at Edward Jones, we talk about in analytics, are we using inside out language? Or are we using outside in language? So that inside out language is, are we speaking in industry terminology for analytics and data? Outside in is, are we using plain English? Um, I think a lot of times I've realized in my career, I thought I was using outside in language and I realized I wasn't. And I always thought I was a really great translator because I'm not a data scientist, but I understand them and I can translate what they're saying into plain English. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have tried to use outside in language and still gotten it wrong. Because at the end of the day, people don't care about building a data lake. They don't care about investing in a data lake. They care about the business outcomes that the analytics are going to achieve because of that data lake. It's so far down the path that that's not what we focus on. So really, I think it's important that you have to paint a vision that's based on the business that you're in and the outcomes that your company or firm are trying to achieve. And then once you sell that vision, then you can talk about that supply side of what are you needing in order to get that done. Hmm. So interesting to me. Uh, like I think you and I spoke about um, the whole Apple type of marketing approach in this. Like historically, I'm, I'm a fan of the whole story, but I think it's so applicable for data analytics leaders because when you said okay, I want to be a thought partner. I just don't want to be the analytics person. I, I, I want to be more. I want to be someone who actually delivers value. And if my analytical expertise and prowess can provide something exception, exceptional, fantastic. And if you think about the iPhone, like how did it actually became a thing was doing the opposite of what Microsoft or Sony did. Because what they did is like, hey, we had the PDA computer and now you can make a phone call with it. How amazing is that technology? And they were shocked that no one was buying it. But then what Apple did is instead of like going all in on how impressive the technology is, it was all about what it can do for you. And that's how your iPhone became way more than just a phone. It became a part of you. It became a category on its own. You know, the whole smartphone idea is almost analogous with the iPhone. So, and then every other company then copied that. So uh, with using language, I see kind of the same. So Apple was always really good at avoiding too much technical talk. It's almost like just like a cherry on top. So once you're already bought in emotionally and see yourself using the phone and the opportunities it will open up in your life, of course, it also has the M2 silicone chip, like very neatly organized on the website in a visually pleasing way, right? But they always have their priorities uh, uh, straight. And the inside-out, outside-in language, so we're just about to uh, publish one of our frameworks on this that like over the years just kind of crystallized that we found that there are three levels of storytelling, especially in data analytics. So the first level is the technical. So this is only when you talk about the data lake, because how awesome is the data lake, right? Like all the things it can do, 
we couldn't do this 20 years ago and wow it can you know integrate data from all kinds of different sources but that's just the technical uh and, and uh, the next level which a, a lot of people kind of find this already arrive at this and they do exercise it usually in an in intermediate or sometimes advanced way is when you now can talk to the business so that's fantastic now you're kind of connecting whatever the technology can do the business bottom line the revenue um you know whatever has business impact the business kpis that's fantastic and i think the final layer is what most people miss and that's the personal so that's when actually the 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 technical in the context of the business becomes useful for the individual extra that the last mile that when you manage to to make that jump that's where people actually lean in that's when you kind of pull them into the story because now it's important for them now it helps them to attain their desires and 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 uh eliminate their pain and frustration and really step into like a bolder vision of the future but that's all that's all personal so it really resonates with me the whole inside out outside in uh, a framing of it. yeah yeah i've certainly um i've spent years trying to sell certain things and realizing how many those jumps that I had to take to do that first I you know I want to do next best action for our firm so we need to build a recommendation engine so we need the data we need the real-time data pipelines and a data science platform no one cares right um okay so next best action well if our priority is to um is to get the right advice and guidance, the personalized advice and guidance for our clients, then we can use data and analytics to do that. Still no one cares. If I say, what is the goal of our corporate office and how are we trying to support our financial advisors? Well, we're, so, we're here to support them really um, using their time to complete their purpose, which is to spend more time with their clients to build deeper relationships with them so that they can give truly personalized, holistic um, wealth management advice. In order to do that, if I can build tools that place the information that they need in front of them so they can spend 15 minutes less prepping for their client meeting and 15 minutes more spending time with their client, then, okay, that's what's going to sell it, right? So, oh, we have a competitive advantage in the relationships and the trust that we build with our clients. If I can allow our financial advisors to have 15 minutes more with a client, okay, that's going to get our senior execs' attention. But the data lake recommendation engine, even saying next best action, that's not going to get their attention. Exactly. And it's really a mindset shift. And it's like with everything else, you can't really like a uh, shortcut, the four stages of learning. So the first stage is always the unconscious incompetence. You don't even know what you don't know. Uh, reality just doesn't respond as you want it to. Then something is revealed to you. Like, for example, this insight is like, hey, I need to speak into the business, especially into the personal. And then you become not consciously incompetent. So you kind of need to work your way into the conscious competence when you just kind of keep pushing yourself and exercise, you fail a lot, a lot of manual control. But then when it sets in, when you kind of... Uh, have this critical mass built up, but then you become unconsciously competent when it's just second nature. And I think that's how great storytellers are born. And now you just think that way and you speak that way. And this 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 is how you position yourself in a whole different capacity than before. And again, love him or hate him, but 
Steve Jobs, I think that was the now indelible mark he left at Apple because uh, like it wasn't about him not caring about technology. There's this famous scene when he's just uh, railing on the team because the uh, like the processor, how it's organized inside the, the the Mac is just not neat enough. And they said that, but, but we never talk about that anyways. Like, who cares? So it was all about creating something perfect, but intentionally hiding it from the customer. So it becomes all the more impressive when you have something that just works smoothly. It's perfect. It's very ergonomic. And then if you want to look under the hood, it also happens to be beautiful inside. So I think having that as North Star, as a data analytics leader, to build beautiful things, but at the same time, almost like hide your work and focus on the person. It's a counterintuitive. People will, will love data analytics more when you talk about it less. So this is, it's fantastic insight. Yeah, absolutely. I think as a leader, you think, you know, in the, the beginning of your leadership career, you think about protecting your team and celebrating their work. So you want to talk about the technical and you want to talk about those things. But if you're now working with more senior leaders and you're at stake for them, you understand what their motivations are and what they care about, um, then you need to speak to that. So when you're externally selling the work, you need to talk in their language. And then when you're celebrating the work internally, you talk in your team's language. But I think, you know, it's it's so interesting because when I started my career at Edward Jones, I came from a health insurance company that really focused more on bottom line. And so we could talk about the numbers all day. And then I moved to a company that really cared about relationships and people and stories. And I wanted to fight it. And I wanted to, you know, talk about why the numbers were important. And instead of fighting it, learning how I can translate how analytics and the numbers can support our firm's purpose, support storytelling, giving more time for building relationships, giving more time for storytelling. I've learned that that has just unlocked so many more doors for my team and the ability to do more important work to really integrate data-driven decisions into our organization that would have never been done through trying to sell the technical or the numbers. Hundred mm, percent. So this this is great. I think we already have a lot of meat on the bone here. So first one again, don't try to hire unicorns. Build yourself a unicorn team. We talked a lot about building the relationships and building them the right way, especially the kind of language that you use and how you position yourself in front of your stakeholders. Uh, what other essential pieces? you have in your in your playbook? Yeah, I'd say my last one um, is really centered around data literacy. And I think the analytics, uh, the analytic industry has has gotten data literacy wrong. Um, you know, I think like a lot of large organizations, we went down the path of trying to sell data literacy as this big um, development project, and we're going to create data-driven leaders across our firm. And it was one of those things where I just took the term data literacy, you know, at its face. This is the analytic industry common, you know, language, and that's what we're going to use. Um, and got a lot of feedback about how demeaning it was. And I sat there thinking, I'm like, okay, so if I'm asking you to build your data literacy skills, then I'm basically telling you you're illiterate. That's not a great uh, relationship building uh, turn to to start with. So um, as as my leader always say, you know, says trust is built over time and can you know be 
ruined in a minute. And I think telling someone that they're illiterate is is probably one of those moments you don't want to have when when you're trying to build um, trust with a leadership team. So I, I think coming at data literacy as a skill development program is the wrong way to do it. I think within your unicorn team, having people that truly understand the business, understand the value of relationship building, understanding the value of being at stake with your partners is the starting point. And then teaching your own team how to be more analytically literate or data literate literate by asking the right questions. So instead of trying to sell something and say, I know you're not asking for this, but this is what you need. When a stakeholder has a business problem, learn how to ask the right questions to see where data and analytics can support their business outcomes. So if your team gets really good at asking the right questions, you know, I, I always hear, well, they asked for this, but what they really need is, is something else. And I know what that is. Instead of, you know, I've, I've heard people use an influence technique of, oh, well, I'll give them both. And then eventually they'll realize they all want what I built instead of what they asked for, or I'll escalate. Instead of doing that, work on getting really curious, asking more questions about the business problem, asking those open-ended questions to get to what is the real problem they're trying to solve. And then they're gonna come to the conclusion on their own about what they need, which is probably where you were at already. Or you could uncover some motivation or some piece of the business problem that you didn't know when you made an assumption about, oh, they asked for X, but they really want Y. So I think it's really spending the time with your business partners to more deeply understand the problems they're trying to solve and asking a lot of questions gets you to the right analytic ask. Hmm. This is so, yeah, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so another, uh, again, it seems like, because I'm also writing an article about Steve Jobs, so that's probably why I'm, I think about it all the time, but you see, with Apple, especially during his time, so there's th there were things that the consumers asked for, what they thought they needed. And then Apple was really good at not giving people what they asked for. And it's like, what, what, what? like Apple, the, the master storyteller, who, like, everything that they put out, like, people just basically take it and they love it. Like, Shouldn't they be listening to their customers? And there is that art of actually understanding your customer, not just based on what they are asking for, but being that kind of leader in that relationship of, look, no, I care about you so much that I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to ask you the right questions. And sometimes, sometimes what you think you need is not what you need. And instead of me being lazy and giving it to you anyways, in the hope of you might, you know, realize your own folly, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the bad guy. Maybe I'm gonna be the bad guy a little bit, but it will result in a better relationship between us. So if you think about it, whatever Apple rolls out, the airdrop, the the you know, Apple Pay, maybe it lags a little bit behind. Maybe customers ask for five things and they only get one, but when they get that one thing, you just say that, oh yeah, like, you know, Apple. It just works so well. It's so perfectly integrated into the ecosystem. And maybe again, just a little bit of a tactical layer here. So when you say training the team to ask the right questions. Um, I know it's very difficult with uh, data scientists. We're talking about, you know, sometimes super smart PhDs 
They're really proud of the things that they can build. And, you know, asking the right questions is not something that they that, that they're used to. They sometimes don't even realize that it's a skill that they need to build. So do you have any best practices on, on kind of bridging that gap specifically? Yeah. So I would say, and this is just a note that I would take from a general leadership book, it's when you want someone to behave differently, put them in a room with someone that behaves in the way you want. So if I have a data scientist in the room that is maybe a more black and white thinker and looking for those yes or no questions, I'm going to ensure when they're working with the business that they're in the room with an analytic consultant that's more focused on relationship building, asking open-ended questions, has less analytic acumen than them. So maybe their mind goes more towards the business problem than the technical problem. Um, and then together when they're in the room and it's maybe a more extensive meeting because you've got a couple people in there versus, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. But I think that's when you start to unlock more conversation. Um, so I, I'm never um, opposed to bringing more people into the room. I think the more people you have that think differently than each other, the better questions you're going to come up with. Different people hear different things. So when we have our project teams together, we put an analytic consultant in the room with someone that's maybe a data SME and someone that's a data scientist, and they're all hearing different things from the business owner. Um, so that's that's definitely the way we go about it. And it's not to say that I don't want the data scientists to not learn how to ask those better questions, but I think that they will do so by being a part of a broader conversation and listening to how other people are talking and asking questions. You know, th this is also uh, super useful if I uh, think about that dynamic. I think in, in our uh, previous conversation, I really liked that you were like borderline provocative with it is like, look, stop at the data literacy. And it sounds counterintuitive, but whenever I think we diagnose the problem as a, hey, why did this solution why wasn't it implemented? Why are people not using it? Oh, people don't understand. And then jumping to the conclusion, so they don't understand, so they should speak our language. It's just must much more productive to go from the other way. And guess what? If you do that, people suddenly want to learn analytics. So suddenly how they look at you is not the builder of this technology, but the purveyor of truth. Now, the truth is inherently like a, a human concept for a human being. So something becomes true when it, when it becomes like useful and applicable to you. A data lake in isolation and abstraction, it has no truth value. What's happening in my business? What's happening with my work? And what I should do, the truth about that is super valuable to me. So if my analytics person can be my, what we call, I think we talked about this uh, before, the data conciliaire, right? When you can become that trusted advisor when i think about okay what's going on with me i need some i need some guidance i need some truth right okay i have a person who who has that for me if you can become that then suddenly people will want to learn analytics they they want to when they think about you then they just want more of it so no this is fantastic lindsay thank you so much for revealing your your playbook and uh, you know sharing your secret sauce with the community i think it was uh, really useful and i like the 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 simplicity of it but also just so much so much content on that. Um, so maybe as a final note, so what would you recommend for the aspiring data analytics leaders of the future? Right now, a lot happening. Uh, technology is expanding at an accelerating rate. You know, chat GPT, generative AI, uh, businesses are paying more attention now. So if you had the chance to give advice to that 
data analytics practitioner of the future who has great dreams and visions to become a leader one day, what would your advice be? Yeah, I have, I have a few things. So one, I'd say learn the business. So your analytics, um, your technical skills, your coding skills, they don't mean anything if you can't integrate your analytics into business decisions. So ensure that you're really being curious and learning the business that you're in. Um, I think that's that's number one. Two, hire critical thinkers. To your point, the pace at which technology and analytics is changing is so rapid, it's you know almost impossible to keep up. So instead of hiring you know the best coder, if you're hiring a critical thinker, a puzzle solver, you know you can you can learn the code. So ensure that you're hiring people that have that critical thought, have that basics in in math. And then you can build the skill sets from there and grow and evolve your team as you go. Fantastic. Third, yeah, yeah, go um, ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, sure. Say analytics is an accounting. So you don't always need to get to the perfect answer. And I think it's really important that leaders learn to use their judgment to balance what you need to do to build a relationship and be at stake for your business partners versus being so principled that you have to get the absolute right answer with your analytics. So if you can, you know, get an A plus on on the model in, in eight weeks, but the business needs a decision in six, um, use your judgment to, you know, ensure that the work is good enough and that you can caveat it in the right ways, but making sure that you're building analytics for the purpose of solving business problems versus getting that perfect answer. No, that's great. And all I wanted to say there is with the hiring critical thinkers. So I think it's becoming more and more important, especially with these solutions that no one can keep, keep up with. Like you won't really have these people who will be like, I'm a specialist on this solution. Literally every single day, there will be multiple solutions coming out. So, uh, how I framed it, but I think you, you hired it, uh, like you framed it so well, but the critical thinkers, I always think about it as I want to hire problem solvers because that if a person is really wired towards solving a problem, the, the way through which they will solve the problem becomes a side note. And actually that's what I'm looking for. So someone who is really open to learn is not set in their ways. And also maybe for the, the practitioners who are right now, uh, specializing, that's fantastic. You know, it's great to have kind of like a, a super weapon that you have, but expanding your scope and being more open to learning these new ways will get you really, really far. So Lindsay, thank you so much for the conversation. It was great. Uh, and thank you for the playbook. And we look forward to further collaborations with you within the data soil letters community. Thanks so much. Thank you.